Good morning, church. Everybody doing great? Yeah, doing great. Amen and amen. Nothing but the blood of Jesus. You believe that? Yes, indeed. Well, I was uh, greeting folks at the door after first service, and an elderly gentleman comes by, and he's crying. And he says, boy, he says, I, I have lived a life of sin. Today, for the very first time, the blood of Jesus really makes sense to me. So it was an awesome, awesome moment. And we're going to be sharing that together today as well. Nothing but the blood of Jesus. Well, if you're visiting us for the very first time, we're glad you found the Bible Church. My name is Tim, one of the pastors here. And my privilege is to to just help us to enjoy God's Word this morning as part of our worship together. If you would then take your iPad or your phone or your Bible, whichever you brought with you, and let's make our way to the epistle of 1 John, which is way near the very end of your Bible. Uh, 1 John chapter 1. And uh, thinking of iPhones and so forth, you might just want to silence that phone. That would be a great help to us if you haven't already done that. Uh, We would be grateful if you did that. If you need a Bible this morning, raise your hand because we keep some in the back just in case you got out without yours. And there's a note page in your uh, bulletin. Grab that as well because that will be of some help. And under the guiding inspiration of the Holy Spirit, the aged Apostle John writes the following. Verse 1, 1 John 1. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon and have touched with our hands concerning the word of life, The life was made manifest, and we have seen it, and testify to it, and proclaim to you the eternal life, which was with the Father and was made manifest to us. That which we have seen and heard, we proclaim also to you, so that you too may have fellowship with us, and indeed our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. And we are writing these things so that our joy may be complete. This is the message we have heard from him and proclaim to you, that God is light, And in him is no darkness at all. If we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. And the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. And we say, Amen. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins... He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. And we're going to stop right there this morning. Would you join me as I pray together and commit our time in the word to the Lord? And Heavenly Father, as we come, Holy Spirit, as we come, Lord Jesus, as we come, we come with a desire to, and a hunger really to learn from you. And so, Holy Spirit, you wrote these words. You used John's hand, but they come from your heart. We would be so, so grateful if you would open the eyes of our ears and uh, eyes in our ears to to really grasp the the truth that you have gifted to us in these words. We want to be doers and not just hearers of your word. For the glory of the King, we would ask this in Jesus' name. Amen and amen. 
So church family and visiting friends, we are stepping into week three of our verse by verse explore of the book of First John. Actually, what we call a book here is really a letter from the Apostle John to late first century churches that the aged disciple of Jesus has personal care over, personal responsibility for. It's not just one church that he pastors, but he oversees a number of churches. And these churches are located in what we would call today modern-day Turkey. And these churches are under serious threat from a newly emerging false teaching called Gnosticism. And we have talked about that in the last couple of mornings together. This heretical teaching was loaded with gross distortions about the person of Jesus and how one is truly saved uh, by faith in him. It minimized sin. It promoted a kind of a a live-however-you-want-to lifestyle, a a full-on disregard for God's values and, and what he calls sin. Gnosticism didn't care about that. And it was a self-focused belief system. It was devoid of love for God or really love for others. And so it was a doctrinally confused, morally bankrupt, and lacking authentic love kind of a system. And yet so cleverly disguised was it by these false teachers that it was drawing the undiscerning within and outside of the church away from the true Jesus. That was the situation. And so John takes up quill and parchment, and he writes this letter intending for it to be circulated amongst all the churches, widely distributed, so that anyone could pick up this letter and know what real Christianity looks like and lives like. To say it another way, the main goal of this book is to give genuine evidences, tangible, practical proofs, of what authentic Christians believe and how they behave. How do we know if someone is is a real Christian or not? How do we know if we are the real deal? In 513 of this little letter, John actually says, he, he tells us why he writes. He says, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you may what? that you may know that you have eternal life. The whole letter is driven by that thought. Now, our focus today, as you might have seen from your note page in in red near the top, we're focusing this morning on verses 8, 9, and 10 of chapter 1. But just like John does throughout this entire letter, circling back, picking up a thought that he's already addressed once, we're going to kind of go back and very quickly uh, do the same thing. For just a moment, kind of return to some stuff we've already been thinking about uh, in order to get our bearings a little bit. And if someone wasn't here with us last time, maybe to help them uh, ramp up to speed quickly. So after affirming the deity and humanity of Jesus right out of the blocks, verses 1 through 4, John declares an essential truth about God the Father that real Christians are going to affirm. And that is that God is sinless perfection. Verse 5. This is the message we have heard from Jesus. We've heard this straight from Jesus. We proclaim it to you that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. And then in verse 7, but if we walk in the light, God's light, as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. 
So John puts in front of us right away in this letter, light and darkness, two metaphors describing two diametrically opposed opposite moral ethical worlds. God is light. That means he's absolute purity. He's he's holy goodness. He is perfect beauty. He is he is sinless righteousness. Holy, holy, holy. The angels of heaven cry out. Darkness is the opposite of all of that. Darkness is sin. Darkness is rebellion against God. Defiance of what God loves, what God wills. Darkness is evil. To walk in darkness is to practice a lifestyle that disregards all that God regards. To be drawn to practice what God hates. We live in a dark world. Agreed? We live in an unreal dark world. And it's getting darker all the time. Would you agree with that as well? Sure, you can't watch the nightly news and not come to that conclusion. What does the world desperately need? What does America desperately need, church family? It needs Jesus. It needs the light that is God. Jesus said that this was his mission. Acts chapter 26, verse 18. Here's what Jesus says. I came to open their eyes so that they may turn from... Darkness to light. That's why I came from the power of Satan to God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. That's pretty straightforward, isn't it? Jesus says, this is why I came to lead people out of the darkness and into the light of God. Darkness to light. All sin is darkness and all of us were born into this darkness. We didn't get to vote. It just is the way that it is. Jesus came into our darkness to bring us into the light. And someday he is going to reign and there will be no more darkness. And we say, Jesus, come. We want that now, right? We want to live in your light. Oh, Lord Jesus, come. What a glorious day that will be. But that day is not here yet, is it? Certainly not. And yet these false teachers were saying things about sin and darkness and light and all of that. And they were saying uh, that, that sin really isn't a big deal to God or perhaps worse, that it's not an issue at all or even worse than that, that sin has never really been a part of our lives. Those were some of the tenets of Gnostic teaching. And John, boy, he doesn't sit very long before he confronts some of this heresy regarding the subject of sin. In verse 6, verse 8, and verse 10. Now, the topic of sin is not super popular in our day, right? But I am so glad that here at the Bible Church we can talk about it. There are churches where you can't talk about sin. This isn't one of them, right? It will never be one of them, right? Yeah, we can talk about this. Verse 6, John says, If we say we have fellowship with God while we walk in darkness, we lie and we do not practice the truth. In verse 8, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. Verse 10, if we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. John wants to talk about sin, right? So we're going to talk about that this morning as well. We're not going to land there for the full time, but we're going to head there to begin with. 
Through John's pen, the Holy Spirit says, listen, real Christians, the real deal are real about sin in their lives. Would you agree with that? That real Christians are real about sin. Yeah. Anyone who approaches sin, the issue of of sin in his or her life in a, a casual or careless, it's no big deal to God kind of a way, has to ask the question, do I really know the God of the Bible? Do I really know Jesus whom he sent if sin is just not a big deal in my life? On your note page, John tells his readers of old, and he tells us as well, first of all, how not to deal with the sin that is in your life. Each of these three verses begins the same way. I'm supposing that you did not miss that. They all begin with the words, what? If we say. And what John is doing is he is repeating various positional statements that these false teachers are making on the subject of personal sin. He's just repeating what they're teaching. And then he supplies the consequence of holding such a position. So from verse 6, one way not to deal with sin biblically would be to dismiss it. Verse 6, if we were to say we have fellowship with God while we walk in darkness, we lie and we do not practice the truth. If we say with our lips that we are in step with the heart of God, if we are saying that we are walking in common with him and in the shared fellowship of Jesus and his atoning death for the sin in our lives, but our life is marked by an ongoing pattern of sinful behavior, walking in the darkness, John would say, we have to ask the question, we are right to ask the question, do I really know God in a saving life-transforming way. Is it real? The call is not for moral perfection, and I want to make that very clear. John's not calling for us to believe in Jesus and then live perfect lives. Nobody can do that, right? Not as long as we still possess a sin nature. That's not going to happen. So our whole life long, we are going to battle with sin in our lives. But the hunger, the longing of our heart, if we are really in Jesus Christ, is we're going to want to flee from the darkness and run to the light that is God, to light the the truth that is God. A little bit farther into his letter, John will say in chapter 3, verse 4, everyone who makes a practice of sinning, kind of as as an ongoing lifestyle, also practices lawlessness, and sin is lawlessness. Sin breaks God's moral law. And then he says in verse 9, same chapter, no one born of God makes a practice of sinning, for God's seed abides in him, and he cannot keep on sinning because he has been born of God. Isn't that a great verse? I can't wait till we get to that verse because it, it really is freeing for us who know Jesus. We cannot keep on sinning. We were just told in verse 5 that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. Holy, holy, holy. When someone says that they are bound to the one who is light, yet their lifestyle practice is continually dark, that has to mean at the very least that sin is being dismissed 
in that professing person's life. Would you agree with me? It's being dismissed. It's being marginalized. Sin is not seen for what it really is to a holy God. A real Christian can't continually dismiss God's holy character and devalue the cross and the infinite cost of the blood of Jesus and and really call himself a Christian. The one who claims fellowship, who claims relationship with God, but lives darkly, John says, is lying. Not with their lips, but lying with their lives, right? With the way they live, which speaks far louder than words. If we are in true fellowship with God, the God of moral beauty, the godless, the God of sinless light, the moral compass of our heart will be pointed toward the beauty of that light. Our heart will want to go toward the light. We will not dismiss sin because church family, God never dismisses sin, does he? Never, ever. He's grieved by sin. He he can't look upon it, the scriptures tell us. He condemns it. And with holy justice, he punishes it. Either as Jesus bears its penalty on the cross for us, or... The sinner bears its penalty themselves in the horrors of hell. God deals with sin. He doesn't dismiss it ever. Well, there's a second way for how we would not want to deal with sin, though. John would say, he says, you don't want to deny that sin is in your life. Verse 8, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we say, Well, that taps into another, the false teacher's propositions. Within the scope of Gnostic thought in John's day, there were variations on themes, more extreme, less extreme, depending on the teacher. And it's really no different than with false religions in our day. There are there are conservative false religions and then there are extreme false religions. And you and I know exactly what we're talking about there. But while there are variations within the Gnostic camp regarding this issue of sin, all Gnostics held that the material realm and the spiritual realm were distinct. They were separated. They never, they never mixed. What happened in the one has no bearing in the other. Sin was confined to the material realm of, of matter and flesh and body, things that you could see and touch and feel. That's where sin lives. And and uh, in the spiritual realm, well, that's where the real you lives and the, the part of you that's connected to God. So so these two realms, the spiritual and the material, they're completely separate. And this dualistic separation of the material and the spiritual worlds inevitably led to the conclusion that what you did in your material body really didn't matter to God. You could live however you wanted. You could sin up a storm if you wanted to because your spirit, the real you, was not a partner in what your body was doing. Your spirit was held prisoner in your body. That was the teaching of the Gnostics. One could say, I, in my spirit, have no sin. Now, John would hear that and he would say, yeah, right. Yeah, right. 
You may have hit upon a convenient way to give yourself permission to live however you want to live and think that God's going to smile upon you. But God's word knows nothing about this dualistic worldview that you're promoting. He might have quoted David's own testimony in the Old Testament. Holy Spirit inspired when David says of himself in Psalm 51, 5, Surely I was sinful at birth, sinful from the time my mother conceived me, he says. He says, the real me, who I really am, entered this world with a nature that was sin-infected. There's no separation. There's no dualistic thought going on here. And the same Spirit of God says through the Apostle Paul's pen in Galatians chapter 6, do not be deceived. Interesting. Choice of words given verse 8. Do not be deceived. God is not mocked for whatever one sows, that will he also what? That's what he'll reap. For the one who sows to his own flesh will from the flesh reap corruption. But the one who sows to the spirit will from the spirit reap eternal life. We are born sin infected and the body is the vehicle that our sin infected nature uses to express itself. They are interconnected. They are woven together. They are not separate. Do not deceive yourself. God is not mocked. We all have sin in our lives because we all have a sin nature. No one can say, I have no sin. So don't dismiss it, John says. Don't deny that that sin is in your life. And then there at the bottom of your note page, John would say, don't defend sin either in your life. Verse 10. If we say we have not sinned, We make him a liar, and his word is not in us. Again, some of these false teachers were claiming that through the the, the Gnostic way, you could gain spiritual insight, spiritual understanding. You could reach a higher level, a higher plane of spirituality to where there was no longer sin in your life. You just didn't sin anymore. Wouldn't that be nice? Sadly, down through the church age, there have been some branches of the professing Christian tree that historically have made this claim that they have come to such a place in their journey with Jesus that they no longer sin. The story is told about Charles Spurgeon. Uh, Many of you would know that name. Most famous English speaking preacher of the 1800s. He's a favorite devotional writer of mine and Lisa's. Uh, the story's told about him one day meeting a man that made the claim that he no longer sinned. Well, Spurgeon was greatly intrigued by this man and his claim, and so he invited him to his home for dinner. At the dinner table, as everyone was finishing up, as the story goes, Spurgeon took a glass of water from the table, and without warning, he threw it on his guest. The whole glass just threw it right on him. Instantly, Spurgeon's guest was furious, reacted just like you might expect, and retaliated against him with some rather colorful language. To which Spurgeon says, Ah, you see, my friend, the old man within you is not dead. He had simply fainted and could be revived with a glass of water. (laughs) Oh, I wish I could have been there for a moment like that. You know, I think John would have really liked that story. 
Romans 3.23 says it the way that it really is, church family. For all, what? Have sinned and fall. That, word, that, that verb is present tense. Present tense. Keep falling. All have sinned and keep falling short of the glory of God. How can anyone say that, that they have not sinned? I mean, even the Apostle Paul, a man who had known Jesus for years at this point in his life, uh, loved the Lord Jesus, writer of, 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 of a large part of the New Testament, he confesses that his battle with sin never stops. In fact, rather than defend sin in his life, he admits it in Romans chapter 7. This is a passage many of you will recognize Uh, And this is, again, this is Paul as a mature lover of Jesus. Here's what he says, beginning in verse 15. He says, I do not understand what I do. For what I want to do, I do not do. But what I hate, I do. And if I do what I do not want to do, I agree that the law is good. What God says is good. As it is, it is no longer I myself who do it, but it is sin living in me. For I know that good itself does not dwell in me. That is in my sinful nature. For I have the desire to do what is good, but I cannot carry it out. For I do not do the good I want to do, but the evil I do not want to do. This I keep on doing. Can you relate to that? You familiar with that? Boy, you are and I am. This describes you and me, even though we know Jesus. Taking verse 6, verse 8, verse 10, put them all together. The Holy Spirit is saying that in in really an impossible to miss way that anyone who dismisses sin as an ongoing lifestyle, anyone who denies sin in their life or defends sinlessness in themselves cannot, cannot be a Christian. No matter what they might say, they are not the real deal. They are not practicing the truth, verse 6. The truth is not in them, verse 8. And God's word is not in them, verse 10. And here's the irony of ironies. According to verse 10, such persons who live or think in this way are actually guilty of committing one of the most grievous sins of all. Blasphemously making God a liar as they say, What God says is not true. What I believe is true. And when they take that position, God has said something, but they say, no, this is the way it is. What they are really accusing God of is being a liar. Now, that is a serious sin, isn't it? To call God a liar. But that's what's going on here. So this is not how to deal with sin in our lives. We get that. That said, if you'll flip your note page over, let's think about how those who really are Christians deal with the sin in their lives. That's really where we want to live. The very first thing that anyone who is the real deal when it comes to this thing called sin has confessed Jesus in his or her life, confessed Jesus as the Lord and Savior of their life. This ground that we have This is ground we've already been over a little bit in verse 7, but it's really worth repeating because it literally changes our eternity. How does verse 7 read again? Look on your Bible page. If but if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another 
And the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. Do you believe that? Do you confess that as true? God is sinless, perfect, perfection, holy, 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 light. Verse 5 says that. God wants a personal relationship with us, but, but, but sin in us, the darkness we were born into, and that infects our very spirit and soul, as we've been reminded, it will not allow, allow that, that relationship to happen between us and God. So what does God do? Well, he knows that we cannot, by any self-effort of our own, any good intentions or works of our own, remove the guilt of our sin from our lives. We can't take away its penalty. That which is sin-infected can never atone for what, for, 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 or, or take away sin. So what does God do? Well, he sends his own sinless son, Jesus, into our sin-infected world. God puts on human flesh. He lives a perfect sinless life. He dies on the cross as the perfect payment price for the sin that we were born into and the sins we commit every day. And again, we read, and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from what? All sin. God then says to any sinner who will listen to that claim, if you'll put your faith and your trust in what I have done for you, through my son's death and by his resurrection, his death for you as your sin payment, his resurrection as proof that I accept the payment, if you will put your faith in him, I will wash from your life, I will cleanse from you the entire penalty of the sin that has come between you and me and restore the relationship that sin keeps us from having. I will declare you not guilty before my holy presence and I will give you eternal life. And we say, thank you, thank you, thank you. Pure grace. Sin gives you death, God says, but I will give you eternal life through faith in my son Jesus and his blood poured out for you. Romans 10, 9, and 10, they just rush into my mind as I think about this. How do these words read? If you, what's the next word? If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and you, that Jesus is God in the flesh, and you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, having died for your sin, you will be what? You will be saved. That's a promise. For with the heart one believes and is justified. You know what the word justified means? It means to be pronounced not guilty. For with the heart one believes and is pronounced not guilty, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. What a glorious, glorious truth. And you believe it. Four chapters from now, as John nears the end of this letter that he's writing, he will declare in, in chapter 5, verses 11 and 12, this is the testimony that God gave us eternal life and this life is in his Son. Whoever has the Son has life. Whoever does not have the Son of God does not have life. How do we deal with the reality of sin in our personal lives, church family? How do we deal with the reality of a sin nature that we were born with? How do we deal with that reality? We confess We confess Jesus. Look at your note page. 
we confess Jesus. That's first. That's before anything else. Anyone who is really a Christian does this. All who do not do this are not Christians, no matter what they may say. Agreed? That was pretty weak. But then here's the thing. When we have really done this, confessed Jesus, then one of the ways that we will know that that, has, that, that, that transformation has taken place in, our, in our life is that we are going to want to walk more and more in the light of the Lord. We're going to want to do that. As verse 7 says, we walk in the light as he is in the light. In other words, those who are real Christians don't become less aware of their sin as a Christian simply because Jesus died for it. As a matter of fact, we don't dismiss it, we don't defend it, and we sure don't deny it. Real Christians actually become more aware of sin after confessing Jesus than they did before they knew Jesus. It'll be one of the proofs that we are in Jesus in a saving way. We are going to want the light. Now, if we tease out John's metaphor just a little bit more, to confess Jesus and to be saved is to, to step into the light. But at that point, when I make that confession, whenever that happened in your life, as a young person or as an older person, the moment that you confessed Jesus, you stepped into the light and you stepped into his majestic holiness, his sinless perfection. Your understanding of that just began but as you grow in your understanding of who God is this light it gets brighter and brighter and brighter and as it does my awareness of my own struggle with the darkness of sin that still resides within me that becomes more and more a a reality for me I understand more I realize more and more that what I do I don't want to do and the things I don't want to do those are the things I do can you relate to this The longer you're in Jesus, the more you're aware of sin in your life. If you're the real deal. One indication that we're growing, maturing Christians is that we become more and more aware of sin in our lives. Not less and less. And we hate sin more and more. We don't want to do that. The Apostle Paul is our go-to example here for, for what happens as you grow in Jesus. He will very near the end of his life. I mean, he is very close to being martyred for his faith. First Timothy 1.15, he writes this young pastor, and here's how he sees himself. In his own eyes, he sees himself as the worst of all sinners. Verse 15, here's a trustworthy saying that deserves full acceptance. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the worst. He says this at the very end of his life. Was he the worst sinner ever as a Christian? I doubt that. But so attuned is he to the presence of sin in his life that it feels to him like he's the worst. The one who loves the Lord Jesus would never think that they are without sin. For the true Christian, it's the exact opposite. We are keenly aware of how often we miss God's mark, which is really what the word sin means, Remember that? The word sin, it's an archery term in the first century. It means to miss the mark. And so God says, here's the target of my truth. 
my righteousness, my holiness. This is what I want you to do. This is this is my will for you. I want you to hit this target with your life and with your thoughts and your words and your actions. And when we don't do that, we miss the mark and we sin. So John says, verse nine, to Christians, when that happens in your life, if we confess our sins, plural, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins, plural, and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. It is the promise of forgiveness of sins. Don't miss that plural there upon confession to our Heavenly Father. When we confess Jesus, we're recognizing the presence, the reality of a sin nature within. And Jesus' blood addresses that in our life. Separation from God forever, Jesus, he he brings that, he brings us back together with God. That done once and for all, you only confess Jesus once in your life. You don't keep doing that. But after that, here comes verse 9. This is not addressing our sin nature, but the individual acts of sin that we commit as Christians. Sins that... That, that have the effect of disrupting the intimacy of our relationship with God and the Lord Jesus. They're not sins that, that, that tear us away from God, but they certainly impact our relationship. Sin always has that effect. It impacts the intimacy of our relationship, our walk with our God. Would you agree? It's in your life. It happens in my life. Verse 9 is going to deal with that. Here's an illustration that might help. Envision the relationship between a father and, 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 their, and his child. Let's just say a son. When his son says by his actions, Dad, I don't want to do it your way. He doesn't say that with his words, but he says it with his actions. Dad, I don't want to do it your way. I want to do it my way. Parents, has it ever happened? Sure, it happens, right? There, and when, when that happens, there is rebellion, there is disobedience, there's pride, there's self-will that is being expressed. What happens in the relationship between the father and his son when that occurs? Well, there's a breach, right? There is a breach in the relationship. There's the, 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 the fellowship between the father and the son, the, the intimacy, the communication, the joy that they share is wounded by that rebellion. Relational closeness has been lost. The father's love for his son is not diminished one bit, right? Father still loves his son just the same. And the son is still the father's son despite the sin, right? That hasn't changed. But the relationship is suffering. The intimacy has been impacted. We see this so powerfully in Jesus' parable of the prodigal son, Luke chapter 15. Remember this parable? Yeah, this, this father has a son, and the son just takes off. I mean, he really goes off on his own, does his own thing. Their fellowship is dramatically hindered by the son's sin. It remains that way until the son comes back broken and repentant and admits to his father that he has sinned. But when he does that, instantly the relational breach is healed Forgiveness is granted by the father. He lavishes his his son with forgiveness. He throws his arm around him and, and, and then he throws a party. The father throws a party. And the joy and the intimacy that sin had stolen from them, well, that has been restored. That's what forgiveness does upon confession. 
And so that's 1 John 1, 9, with us and God. Let's quickly break this verse, this incredible verse, down into its key words and phrases. It'll help us to see what the Holy Spirit really wants us to see. Verse 9 begins with the word, if, right? Now that lets us know right away that confession is something that we must choose to do. There is an option. You don't have to do this. So you choose to do it. No one's going to make you confess. And so this becomes very key. Confession will be an act of the heart and, and, and the will of the Jesus follower, something that we determine we're going to do. The we there, this is for each and every Christian. John includes himself here. And it's something personal. Confession is something that I do. It's something that you do. We do that. We don't go to a pastor. We don't go to a priest to confess. We do this personally. Next, if we confess our sins, and again, I highlight the plural there, sins. Not talking about our sin nature, but talking about individual acts of sin that we commit. Brother, the word, brothers and sisters, the word confess literally means to say the same thing. It means to agree with. For us, it means to say the same thing about our sins that God says about our sins. To agree with him. When we confess, we're agreeing with God that we have either willingly or perhaps ignorantly by commission or maybe by omission. We've acted in a way that opposes God's will. We're saying, I did that. We didn't make a mistake. We didn't stumble. We didn't blunder all these favorite terms we use to describe sin. And we we certainly wasn't somebody who made us sin. We sinned. We confess that. We broke the heart of God. Our sin cost him the death of his son. He hates our sin. He abhors it. When we confess a sinful act to him, we are agreeing with him that it's sin. And this word confess is also in the present tense, which means that we are continually doing this. We never stop doing this. Continually confessing. It's not a one and done deal. You confess Jesus, that's one time only, right? You don't keep getting uh, saved. But you confess continually the sins in your life, if you're the real deal. If we keep on confessing, he is, what's the next word? He is faithful. How interesting, the Holy Spirit rests the entire forgiveness issue, the forgiveness of sin issue, squarely on the shoulders of who? God's shoulders. He is faithful. This word can also be translated trustworthy. God can be counted on to do what he says. Psalm 100 verse 5 says, For the Lord is good, his steadfast love endures forever, and his faithfulness for how long? All generations. That's God. If we are continually practicing the habit of confessing, he is faithful and he is, what's the next word? Just. Now, because God is just, he has to deal with the sin in our lives. He can't just ignore it. He can't look the other way and preserve his justice. His character won't allow that. But thankfully, he sends the perfect substitute to take our place, to take sin's punishment for us. That allows God to remain just. The sin gets dealt with, but Jesus pays the penalty, right? Yeah. And so he can both be faithful and just. To forgive us. Romans 3.26. He did it. 
That is, God sent Jesus to demonstrate his justice at the present time so as to be just and the one who justifies. Who mean, and that really means no longer condemned. Who justifies those who have faith in Jesus. If we keep on confessing, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins. To forgive, that means to let go. That means to release, to, to set free. Psalm 103, verse 12. It's a beautiful reminder of how thoroughly God forgives us. As far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed our transgressions from us. How far is east from west? Oh, pretty far. Pretty far, right? The two never meet. That's how far apart they are. They never meet. Unbelievable declaration. Forgive us of our sins. If we keep on forgessing, forg- confessing, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Sins, plural. They do a number on our intimate enjoyment of our relationship with our Heavenly Father. He didn't create the breach. We created the breach. We did foolish, disobedient, whatever we did. Does he disown us? No. Does he, does he say, I'm done with you? No. It's impossible for him to do that. He cleanses us when we confess. He restores. Our Heavenly Father longs to have us come to him when sins come between us. And they will, won't they, fellow Christian? They will today. They will today come between us and him. And he longs to hear us confess. To say the same thing about our sin that he says about our sin. He never stops being our father. And his love never wavers. Just like the father in Luke 15. But as soon as we're aware that we've sinned and the conviction of the Holy Spirit is working in us, we sense the loss of joy. uh, The closeness is not there. The prayer communication is suffering. We humbly come to God and we confess, Father, I did whatever it is. It's not because God likes to talk about sin, but he asks us to confess because that's one of the proofs to him and to us that we know him, that we take our sins seriously. As we confess, then he lavishes his relational forgiveness upon us The blood of Jesus washes away the guilt of that sin, makes us clean, and both of us experience the joy of a restored relationship. Do you know about this side of confession in your life? Is this a regular part of your Christian experience? Is this what you do? If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. John says that is one of the distinguishing features of those who are truly in Jesus. They never stop bringing the sins in their life before God in humble confession, and God never stops forgiving them when they do. Real Christians are real about sin. Let's pray together. Well, that's what we want to be, Heavenly Father. We would tell you that collectively as if we could just meld all of our voices together here in this moment. We want to tell you that our heart's desire is to be real, to be real with you and to be real with 
with those around us and to be real with ourselves, especially as we think about this issue of sin in our lives. And Lord, you know, not one of us in this room is without sin and not one of us will ever be perfect. So we are so, so grateful that you have made a way to address these relational breaches that come between us and you because of our because of our sinful choices. We, Lord, how else do we say it? We do stupid. And we're sorry that we do that. How thankful we are for Jesus and his blood, which is paid for every one of those choices. Lord, help us. Help us to, to, to flee temptation. But when it overtakes us, would you please enable us to keep a a short leash on our sin, bring it to you, confess it honestly, openly. And once again, feel the intimacy, the closeness, the wrapping of you, your arms around, around us. And Lord, in this room, it's possible that someone has yet to make a decision about Jesus. They have not confessed Jesus yet. Still not sure. May today be the day when they make the decision that Jesus is real. And that they really need Jesus. And if we can help, Lord, show us how to do that. We love you. We want to live well for you in your light. Make it so. For your glory and for our good, we ask it in Jesus' great name. Amen and amen.